0: Well, good morning, Highlands. It's good to be with you today. Uh, and for today, we're going to continue in our series of parables and how to think like Jesus. And this particular parable, uh, it we're exploring, it makes, uh, it makes the bad guy look like he wins. So today, we're going to be looking at that. You know what it reminds me of? is uh, one of my favorite movies, it's, it's Ocean's Eleven. I don't know, it's been out 20 years, so hopefully you've seen it by now, but you know, it stars George Clooney, uh, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Julia Roberts, Elliot Gould, and it was quite a cast. But uh, anyway, Clooney uh, wants some sweet revenge on this character by the name of Terry Benedict who owns uh, uh, three casinos in Las Vegas, the the Bellagio, MGM Grand, and the Mirage. And Clooney finds out that casino owners are supposed to have enough cash on hand to meet their patrons' bets at any one time. So uh, at an upcoming fight, he finds out, uh, a prize fight, he finds out that the Bellagio vault is going to contain $150 million in cash. So he devises a plan. He gathers eight of of his friends, you know, former convicts, basically, who are experts in their trade, Uh, you know, mechanics, electronics experts, con men, safe crackers, explosive experts, and they all gather and they build this replica of the vault uh, at the Bellagio, but they build a replica of it, and uh, they hack into the Bellagio security cameras, and then they stage a fake heist of this fake vault, and, uh, and then they blow it up. Well, all of the while, Terry Benedict is watching this on his video and he can't believe what he's seeing, because, but he doesn't know that what he's seeing is not the video of his own vault, but the video of the fake vault. And so he sends in his SWAT team, only, uh, only the call gets rerouted to Clooney. And so Clooney then assembles his men dressed as SWAT team members And they make off with $150 million. (laughs) The most elaborate heist in history. And in the end, actually, these eight guys, you know, they're all, at that evening, actually, all pictured around the Fountain of the Bellagio, uh, celebrating their their victory. And then one by one, you know, they go off to enjoy their fortune. But... I'm really, I have two questions in, in, in about Oceans 11. Didn't Clooney and his experts just commit a crime? I mean, well, yeah, uh, they stole $150 million. <laughs> but, but really, you know, it really doesn't enter into the story because it's not so much what they did, but, but how they went about doing it that was just so captivating, you know, to a person watching the movie. And why the title, anyway? Why Ocean's Eleven? You know, what happened to the other ones? Well, the I have, I have an answer for that. It's because crimes like this are nothing new. In fact, crimes like this date right back to biblical times, and we see cleverness like this in this story we're going to about to unpack today. Today, we're going to hear the story of Oceans 1. <laughs> That's right. Now, remember, parables are short stories, just simply meant to illustrate truth. And Jesus used these a lot in, in his teaching. Help us see ourselves and and the world from from his perspective. And the starring role in this story is the uh, the manager, uh, who was a crook. This isn't the first time that Jesus illustrated truth with people who had no halos, okay? Remember the mean old judge who would not help the poor old widow? or the the parable about the the man who was hungry and who went to his neighbor for bread who was the neighbor was sleeping and the neighbor would not get up to answer the door but this one is considered to be one of the most puzzling parables Jesus ever told so first let's look at the context Jesus starts or, or Luke actually starts the the story with the words, he also said. So what did Jesus also just say? Well, we just heard about it last week, remember? With the the parable of, of the prodigal son. How the son squandered the father's wealth in riotous living, and the Pharisees, which were hearing this story, actually might think to themselves, well, then it's okay to squander your wealth because you'll be forgiven and let let go anyway. So Jesus, it's understandable that Jesus might want to say something more to clarify uh, their understanding about money, which actually later in the story, it says Jesus identified them as lovers of money. They needed more clarification. And the story takes place between a wealthy land baron. And this uh, this manager, uh, basically one of the things he did was collect the bills. And in Jesus' day, managers were often hired by wealthy landowners to, to take care of the affairs of the state. So like a financial planner today or a trustee, they were entrusted with the funds to make a better return on that landowner's uh, investment. And among his duties was to collect the debts uh, and give to the rich master. Now, now managers got paid well for doing this. Uh, Most times, managers would charge interest, which they would pocket as their source of income, or a commission, you know, whichever way you want to look at it. And interestingly enough, uh, interest was forbidden by Jewish law. So these rich landowners would actually employ Gentile managers and get around it. So, uh, and, they, and they would charge anywhere from 20% to 100% interest as their source of income. And somewhere, somewhere in all of those upcharges, uh, greed crept in and shady activity was going on with this manager. And the manager, it says, squandered the master's profits. Well, the word here to squander actually is the same word that we see in the earlier story where the son squandered his father's inheritance. So Luke ties these stories, you know, together. And the charges must have been true because the, uh, the rich landowner immediately dismissed the manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I, I'm too ashamed, I think embarrassed, really, to, to, uh, to beg. This man's options were running out. I mean, time was running short. Tomorrow, he would be out of a job. And perhaps you faced layoffs, you know, unemployment. You know the feeling? All those mixture of emotions, the uncertainty, the urgency, the, I guess the sense of panic, you know. Uh, you might not call it panic, but believe me, I've been there, I know, and, and the panic enters into it. And he must have been feeling that. But you know, just then, a thought struck him. Um, he said, I have possession of the books. I still have the books. And the the wealthy owner gave him some time to reconcile, you know, the books. Before anyone knew of his dismissal, he said, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And the word houses, actually, it's households. It's, It's the whole business that comes with that household he's talking about. Now, the words decided what to do, it misses it really a bit. In the Greek, it's dramatic. It's a a dramatic tense, uh, better translated, I see it now. I've got it. You know, it's like the light bulb just went on. That's it. I know what I'll do. So he decides to forego his last interest kickback. His last remaining paycheck and give his renters a break. Can you imagine the scene when, when this manager shows up at the doorstep of these farmers? I mean, they would welcome him like a, a man would welcome a man serving you an eviction notice, you know? Uh, but instead of demanding full payment, the manager. Uh, says, uh, boy, it gives him a sweetheart deal. I have a beautiful offer for you today, and today only, if you pay me, I don't know, $8,000, I will cancel your debt in full. I'll make your debt go away. I mean, this manager is clever. How would you feel? Maybe you have a massive school debt, or I don't know, a car loan, or or a house loan, or whatever it is, and you get a call or contacted by your lender, and your lender says, "Um, you know, we've been thinking about it and decided that today, and today only, we're gonna give you a discount. You know, how about 50 cents on the dollar? You know, if you're like me, I'd say, really? (laughs) And you know, the lender would say, well, absolutely, really. And I'd go, really? You've got to be kidding me. Is this a scam? You know, and you'd find out who is this person, this call that has just uh, informed me of this, and I don't know. The manager would say, well, uh, I'm Habib, the, the manager. You know me. And by the way, uh, after, after the debt is, is erased, could you add me to your LinkedIn file? And just give me a, you know, a reference when, because I'm going to be relocating and I'm moving on in my career. Could you do that? And without the approval of the rich master, this manager reduces the debt on all of these people. He writes it off. Now Now, this wasn't unheard of in those days. I mean, rich masters would sometimes forgive a portion of the debt so that they would be considered by the public as as benevolent. So how much was the debt, anyway? Well, the measures of oil amounted to about 150 trees. I mean, no small sum. That's about 3,000 denarii, and the amount of uh, forgiven was worth about a year and a half's wages. The amount of wheat that was forgiven was um, the yield of about 100 acres, again, no small sum, but in both cases, although the percentages differ, the amounts forgiven was about the same. It was about 500 denarii or a year and a half worth of wages. So that tells us something. These farmers, these renters, were pretty well to do in their own right and very well might be able to hire this manager uh, when he was unemployed. So the result was, of course, the manager lost money in the short term, but he gained something far more valuable in the long term. He gained friends. He gained influence in the community, and that's worth a tremendous amount. He gained public favor For himself, and indirectly, he gained favor for this rich master who would also be considered generous, too. And what about the master, anyway? Well, since farmers uh, thought that the manager was still working for the master, they thought the generosity, of course, was originated with, with, with the master, was showing them generosity. And if the master punishes the manager at this point, people are going to look on it like, like, well, he's punishing him for his generosity. And uh, and if he tries to make a case against any of the manager's upcharges, then the issue of illegal interest may come up. So this uh, master's hands are tied. He's been outwitted and outplayed. And uh, no one, there's nothing he can do, and no one will find out the truth. So what does the master do? He actually commends the manager. He congratulates this dishonest manager. Now the question is, which way is it? Did, Did the manager charge interest? I mean, since it was a common practice in that day, can we just assume that was, that was happening? You know, I mean, was there a commission involved? And if that's true, then the manager really wasn't cheating his master out of any additional um, funds. It, he was just taking a cut on his own paycheck and paying it forward. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the interpretation which really, to me, makes the most sense based on the history and background of the time. But the other view, of course, the more traditional one, is that the manager was a crook from beginning to end. <laughs> you know, he, he was dishonest in the beginning. He was a dishonest at the end. He was cheating his master all of the way. And Luke just simply doesn't give us the details to fill that in. But here's the, here, here's the thing. It really doesn't matter. Because the master did not commend the manager for acting dishonestly. No, he commends the manager for acting shrewdly and cleverly. Just like Ocean's 11, the heroes of this story are the most unexpected people. And sure, shady dealings were going on, but it's not so much what was happening, but how it was all unfolding, which was really captivating. And it makes the point of Jesus even greater. What are these points? Well, Jesus makes sure to clarify this parable and he explains the teachings that is is a part of this. First, invest wisely. Invest wisely. Jesus says the children of this age are shrewder than the children of light in dealing with their own people. The point being, those of us who are heaven-bound should be more clever, should be more focused, more wiser, more discerning with our money and how we invest it, shrewder. Twice in this story, Jesus uses the word shrewd. And what does that mean? Well, a shrewd person is creative. They're cunning, they're wise. They have a good understanding of circumstances and make good judgments which are mentally sharp or clever. Now, our Lord is the most creative being in the universe. I think you would agree with me. And doesn't it make sense that he would enable his people to be clever, to be shrewd, to have great understanding and invest in his good news in a a winsome way. You know, uh, not long ago, uh, someone on our team, our staff team, uh, asked the what if question. You know, what if? uh, And we always welcome those kinds of questions uh, on our staff. What if we, uh, uh, I got it. He said, let's... uh, what if we gathered our people on the 4th of July? And uh, another person chimed in, yeah, what if we had it outside on the lawn? And another one says, yeah, what if we had a picnic afterwards and served, I don't know, hot dogs? And another person, what if, oh, I got it. Let's call it Highlands on the Lawn. And we did it last week. Were you there? It was a wonderful occasion. We just celebrated how it's such a one wo- Family spread out blankets on the grass after the service and just stuck around. It was wonderful. All started with an idea. I got it. That's how the Lord works. And God blessed. Over 400 people showed up. Many of those people from our community. yeah. Jesus said, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. What if? Is a question every believer needs to ask when it comes to investing. How can we use our money? to bring more people into heaven who will welcome us, as Jesus says, into our eternal dwellings. Now, who will be our welcoming party? Well, obviously, it's gonna be the Lord Jesus. He's gonna meet us. Obviously, his angels will be there, but, but here we see another a group of people, and the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says in uh, 1 Thessalonians, he says this, for who is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Perhaps oh, people one day that you have influenced for Christ will welcome you in, in paradise. So build, friends, now. Now. Ask the what-if question and go for it. You know, commit your LinkedIn files and your Facebook pages to the Lord and, and use that for his glory. Think of people with eternity's values in view and see what he does. Next, love people and use money. <laughs> you know, I was, I was practicing this sermon And it came out, love money and use people. No, 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 Barry, it's not love money and use people, it's love people, so I'm glad I said it right. It's love people and use money. Then all the world though, I mean, it's true, they tend to have it backwards. They love money and use people. But Jesus says build friendships that last into eternity. Hear this manager. Was willing to risk his entire commission, his last paycheck, to build future friendships. He obviously thought it was worth the sacrifice, far more valuable. His future depended upon it. And just like in biblical times, the same is true today. You know, it's pretty well known uh, that uh, business uh, runs along relational lines, right? More deals are struck, I've heard, on the golf course than in the boardroom. Well, the the same is true in, um, in our church. Church ministry happens along relational lines. So what relationships are you building? You know, who are you reaching? So Jesus says, I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. You know, the words worldly wealth are better translated unrighteous money. And uh, even in the New Testament in another part, money is called filthy lucre. Well, what's so filthy and unrighteous about money anyway? Well, Money, by its nature, is unrighteous. And it's untrustworthy, because it always has the potential to take away our trust in God. You know, it reminds me of a, when I was, uh, when I was in college, I was, I was painting apartment houses for a guy who would pay me just once in a while, you know, in cash, under the table. He had a gambling problem. And uh, so sometimes I'd have to actually show up to his house to collect, you know, my, my paycheck. And his wife would end up having to pay me because he ended up not having any money. And she told me one time, she says, the only thing you can trust is that dollar in your pocket. And I thought, how sad. You know, how sad. But it begs the question, what is our ultimate security? Notice Jesus said worldly wealth, he said when it fails, not if. There will be a time in all of our lives where money will be absolutely worthless. That's true, but is that how we think about it today? And since worldly wealth will be ultimately worthless, what is genuinely valuable? What are the things that really count? What are the things that last for eternity? Well, there are three. God, of course, his word, Jesus says, my word will not pass away, and the souls of men. So doesn't it make sense to invest in some way in a a one or all of these? And God, by the Holy Spirit, will will prompt your heart um, in those areas. Amazing, isn't it, that we can even use worldly wealth to, uh, to build into the lives of people for eternity. You know, there was a note uh, found inscribed, scribbled really, in, in the journal of a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott, uh, just before he was martyred in Ecuador, it says this, He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. So love people into the kingdom. Love people into the kingdom and use money. Number three, think about money differently. Luke 16 says, "'No servant can serve two masters, "'since either he will hate the one and love the other, "'or he be devoted to one and despise the other.'" He says, you cannot serve God and uh, money. Jesus said this because we needed to hear it, right? Uh, we need to think about it differently. I mean, if everyone understood what Jesus said, Jesus wouldn't need to waste his breath. But the fact is, many people today think they can serve God and money. But Jesus says that's simply not true. He shares a general principle, too. It says this, Whoever is faithful in that which is little is faithful also in much. And whoever is unrighteous in the very little is also unrighteous in much. You know, I've heard some people uh, you know, they focus on the big things. They say, you know, when I retire or, you know, when I pay off my house or car or whatever it's going to be, I'm going to give this big sum and, and <laughs> you know what? As good as that sounds, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. No. What Jesus is saying is that our love for God should be, should infiltrate our lives so much that that it affects the way we even buy groceries. Faithfulness in the little things indicates how faithful we will be in those big things. The true riches of our relationship to God and to others will be evident. But Jesus goes on to share even more about the truth, about his perspective. He says he's testing us. I mean, the strong implication is he's testing us. He says, so if you've not been faithful in worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? So how's the test going for you? We are all managers, really with what the Lord has allocated to us. And because he's watching and one day, we will be called into account as well. The books will also be opened. Second Corinthians 5 says, "'For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that everyone may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil.'" Fellow believers, we won't be facing a judgment, a condemnation, okay? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we will be evaluated and rewarded based on what we have done. There's a lot of issues, you know, that demand our attention that we could talk about now. Uh, Disintegration of the family, abortion, euthanasia, racism, poverty, justice, you know, sex trafficking. And These are all just critically important and, and demand our attention. But the most radical problem that we face today is that most people do not know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And any effort we make to, to help these, these, these issues that face us today should be linked to the transforming, redemptive power that is found only in Jesus You know, we stand against racism and bigotry by demonstrating that all people are created equal and made in the image of God. We we slow the disintegration of family by showing the world what uh, a loving Christ-centered home looks like. And we help stop acts of abortion and euthanasia by again, showing to the world and demonstrating that all life is precious to God. Again, the biggest influence we can have. And that's why we so, we so focus on this is to bring hope and healing of Jesus because it only is found in him to people who don't have any other answers. You know, as the band comes up and we reach the end of our time together, let me clarify something. You know, typically at the end of messages uh, like this, there's a catch. You know, there's a catch. I mean, then I'm uh, shared the, the building program or the pledge drive or, or whatever it is that we're asking money for. But, but if that's what you've heard, there is no catch today. That's not why I'm here. We're not asking you to give. I mean, as much as we're grateful for your your faithful and generous giving to Highlands, that's not why I'm here today. I'm not asking you to, to give to a special cause or a pledge drive. I'm asking you to think differently about money because you sow a thought, you reap an act. You sow an act, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. And if you sow a character, you'll reap a destiny. It all starts. With, how are you thinking about money? When our Lord and master opens your accounts, what will he see? What needs to change? Because what we do tomorrow starts with how we think today. So be shrewd, ask the what ifs. Let the Holy Spirit illuminate your mind. I know what I'll do. And then follow through, let's pray. Lord, there are some here that um, need to come to you for the first time and say, Lord, I laid down my life, take me. I accept and need your forgiveness in my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I ask you to be my personal Lord and Savior. I wanna follow you the rest of my life. And there are those of us, Father, who just need realignment with what we think and how we live in terms of what's valuable. Jesus said, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. We do not want that, Lord. So remove the deceit. Help us to live for you and invest wisely to live with eternity's values in view. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.